uh, there's some expectation or hope, I think, among liberals that Kagan will sort of be the intellectual uh, counterweight to Scalia. Scalia is so, such an aggressive, abrasive, but brilliant uh, advocate and uh, writer. And, and I think Justices Breyer and Ginsburg haven't really stepped up to the plate. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. My co-host, J. Craig Williams, is off today. Uh, we'd like to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, which offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and law firms at suntrust.com slash law. And Clio, the web-based practice management solution available at goclio.com. Well, with a vote of 63 to 37, the Senate confirmed Elena Kagan as the 112th Justice of the Supreme Court and the fourth woman ever to serve on the Supreme Court. While many who voted for Kagan praised her for her brilliance, uh, others questioned her her lack of judicial or courtroom experience. Uh, Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to look at some of the issues surrounding her confirmation and uh, the impact she might ultimately have on the Supreme Court. Helping us do that today are two guests. First of all, uh, I'd like to welcome to the program Professor Joel B. Grossman. Joel Grossman is a professor of political science and constitutional law at Johns Hopkins University, where he studied and taught about the Supreme Court for more than 40 years. He served as editor of the Law and Society Review and uh, is the author of numerous books and articles on the Supreme Court, uh, Constitutional Law and Judicial Politics. Uh, Welcome to the program, Professor Grossman. Thanks for having me. Our next guest is a returning guest, uh, Tony Morrow, the Supreme Court correspondent for the National Law Journal and for ALM Media. He's been covering the Supreme Court for more than 30 years. He also writes for the blog of Legal Times and for the Supreme Court Insider, a new newsletter published online by ALM. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer, Tony Morrow. Good to be with you. I I meant to mention also that Professor Grossman is, of course, an adjunct professor at the University of Maryland School of Law. I'm sorry for not mentioning that before. Uh, You know, since uh, the announcement of... uh, uh, that, that President Obama had nominated Elena Kagan in May. Uh, we've we've perhaps been uh, Elena Kagan to death. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about her in in a short amount of time as as we've gone through the confirmation process. But uh, Tony, I want to start with you and ask uh, you know as a as a longtime observer of the court and as somebody who watched this this process closely, uh, is there is there anything that you learned about her through this that that perhaps uh, the general public uh, does not fully appreciate or did not come to understand about her? Well, I think uh, what I'd say is that she 
she had a a much more uh, substantial background than I think uh, people realized, uh, and part of it was quite political. Uh, the one of the biggest resources of information now for Supreme Court nominees are presidential papers because uh, several of them have done, done tours of duty in uh, in the in a previous White House and uh Elena Kagan was certainly one of them and she had uh, s- several positions in the White House the Clinton White House uh, as well, as a deputy as a White House counsel and as a a deputy uh, in the uh, domestic policy office and both in both instances they she proved to be rather a political person and it's not no big surprise the White House is is by uh, almost by definition a political place uh but that was one dimension that I think people hadn't seen on the other hand uh she also had more depth of legal experience than I think people uh realized and uh, um as you mentioned uh, the republicans uh, criticized her for a lack of judicial and courtroom experience but I I think they uh, overplayed that that uh, criticism, uh, she really, it'd be hard to suggest that she isn't as qualified as uh, probably three, as any any Supreme Court nominee we've had who's been a successful justice. Well, I want to come back to that uh, experience question, but, but I want to bring uh, Professor Grossman into the conversation and just ask, uh, generally, as you observe the, uh, the confirmation process here, was there anything... What is there anything that that uh, perhaps stood out for you or surprised you about uh, Elena Kagan? Um, well, I, I I hadn't realized the, quite a, how extensive her political experience was. Um, but other than that, and, and I knew her only by reputation, um, she performed about the way that that I would have expected. Uh, keeping in mind that the the whole confirmation process has essentially been reduced to a charade uh, that uh, the white, every White House, Democrat or Republican, uh, appoints handlers for their nominees uh, and tries to teach them how to respond and, most important, what not to say uh, in response to senators' questions, trying to tease out of them some glimmer of, of ideology uh, and so the process uh, just goes along. Essentially, it's become a, a highly partisan process. Uh, when she was nominated, my students asked me what I thought, and I said I thought it was a good nomination and that she would be confirmed with 65 votes. Well, I was off by two. <laughs> so, you know, the, and that's the way the process now goes. It wasn't always that way, but that's the way it has gone pretty much for the last 40 years. Tony, do you agree with that assessment that the process has become uh, largely a charade? Oh, I agree. Uh, they really, uh, as Joel said, the, the, the nominees are trained on how to say nothing uh, uh, articulately, and uh, and it's uh, the the lines are drawn almost before the nominee says anything. I was just watching uh, a speech by Justice. Ginsburg. She just addressed the American Bar Association, and uh, she was recalling that. For her nomination, she got, I think, three negative votes. It was like ninety-six to three. Uh, 
and she had been a, a lawyer for the American Civil Liberties Union in her in her past. And it's so hard to imagine uh, someone with that background getting winning confirmation in today's climate, but she got uh, overwhelmingly confirmed. So I think that that's a, a kind of a reminder of how political and, and divisive it's gotten. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Republicans, who are, of course, the opposition party now, uh, pretty much decided they were going to vote against her, and then they had to come up with reasons. Uh, and that at least sounded sensible. Uh, and so they talked about lack of judicial experience, but actually, uh, I believe 40 of the 112 justices uh, on the Supreme Court have not had any judicial experience, including such people as John Marshall and Earl Warren, and even William Rehnquist uh, and, and uh, Lewis Powell. They were the last two justices, by the way, uh, not to be federal court of appeals judges. That had become the kind of uh, route to the Supreme Court, and Rehnquist himself criticized it. He said he thought the court would be a better court if it had people with some kind of political experience. Uh, actually, I should have said O'Connor was a judge, but not not a federal judge, and she was actually the last justice to have some kind of political experience uh, uh, until you go back, say, to Thurgood Marshall in 1965. So I think that that Obama recognized number one that the court needed people like that that were different, that was more diversity. Uh, and also there's an advantage, as was mentioned earlier, that uh, um, in terms of what we call confirmability, she had no record. Uh, she wrote only two or three articles, as well, even though she was a, a well-known and uh, distinguished law professor, uh, so there was almost no paper trail. And you mentioned Ginsburg before. Ginsburg was able to say, look, I don't, I, I don't need to answer your questions about ideology, just read my stuff. And that's what people did, and everybody knew it. Well, well, not only did she lack judicial experience, but she really lacked uh, uh, practical, you know, law practice experience. I mean, most of her career was in academia. Uh, you know, even uh, here in Massachusetts, uh, Senator, our new senator Scott Brown, uh, with her coming out of Massachusetts, uh, praised her for her brilliance, but voted against her based on her yeah. lack of experience. Uh, you know. Is that, it, was Trump. It, that was Trump. He voted against it because he was under Republican pressure, I think. Well, of, yeah, undoubtedly. Uh, but, but you know, is there some is there some legitimacy? I, I, I hear what you're saying about the lack of judicial experience, but what about the fact that she's really never practiced law either? I mean, can somebody, you know, how well does acad a career in academia prepare you for uh, service on the Supreme Court? Well, I, if I could just uh, make one point on that, uh she actually did. Uh, uh, she was in private practice for maybe not for very long. But for, she was an associate at Williams and Connolly, which is a pretty uh, major law firm in D.C. And she did have some uh, experience in that way. Uh, the other thing I would mention is that her year as Solicitor General, uh, I think, was a would put her in good stead in terms of the kind of experience you need as a as a justice you if she was, if she hadn't been familiar before with how the supreme court thinks and operates uh, she certainly got immersed in it for the last 
year and uh, also argued before it uh, uh, seven times, I believe. And uh, so I think that that kind of was a quick study, a quick fill for her to to get uh, up to speed. Um, well, I think those are relatively minor considerations uh, um, because I think the the Supreme Court is it doesn't deal with with a lot of ordinary cases. There are a few, of course, but the big cases are essentially political cases. Uh, and what you need are people who are smart. Uh, doesn't matter how much they know, but matters how quickly they can learn. Uh, they've got these smart law clerks, uh, and and they can they can they can figure things out pretty quickly. And basically. You know what Obama looked for, and, and that's perfectly reasonable. And, and what uh, George Bush looked for with Roberts and Alito uh, were justices who shared his ideology. Uh, I, I might say that that uh, I think Roberts and Alito were the greatest successes of the Bush administration, in the sense that I think he got the kind of people that he wanted. Uh, that doesn't always happen. Uh, so. I don't put much stock in the in the argument about judicial prior judicial experience. Uh, I do think that on the court, it's always helpful to have a variety, a diversity of experience. Different people, you know, come from different backgrounds, have different kinds of of legal and political experiences. Uh, I think that's helpful on a, on this kind of a court. And and being a trial judge or even an appellate judge is is less important. Tony, let me ask you the uh, the, the it seems to be commonly accepted that uh, Kagan's appointment will not significantly change the ideological makeup of the court. Uh, do you agree with that assessment? And if so, I, I wonder what you think she she might bring to the court. How her presence on the court might change the court. Well, I think I think it is basically right. She'll she'll vote probably pretty closely to the way Justice Stevens would have if he had remained on the court. Uh, even though Justice Stevens always during his tenure always said he he was still a conservative. Just the court had changed under him, around him, but he was still conservative. Although, uh, practically speaking, he really was a member of the liberal part of the court, uh, and I think uh, Justice Kagan will be as well. But uh, that said, I think every justice brings something different, uh, different emphases and um, different uh, priorities. Uh, I think we already have seen that. Uh, Justice Sotomayor was different from Justice Souter, uh, and uh, and I think uh, that'll be the case here. I, I it's hard to say where that will turn up, but I think uh, I think Kagan will bring in bring several new elements. Uh, certainly, uh, she'll have uh, some. Uh, she she has a lot of experience uh, or interest in the First Amendment. Uh, uh, it's again, it's hard to say, but I think I think just by, by the nature of a different personality being there, there'll be uh, there will be differences. I, I agree with that. I think that 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 every time a new justice is appointed, it's it's in a sense a new court 
because the, the 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 internal dynamics will differ a little bit, maybe maybe not maybe a lot, but usually a little bit. Uh, you know, when 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 uh, 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 Stalia joined the court, I think Rehnquist moved a little bit to the left, not much, uh, because some of Stalia's positions were too far right, even for Rehnquist. Uh, and when Thomas joined the court, uh, he moved to the right of Stalia. Uh, and if you look at a lot of their opinions in, say, commerce clause cases, you find that Scalia is, is a conservative, but but he's not trying to 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 change the world. He's not trying to re-examine McCulloch versus Maryland, an eighteen nineteen case, uh, which may be the most important case the court ever decided. Uh, and Thomas is is you know often. Uh, uh, concussing or dissenting alone on those kinds of questions. So uh, he, there is a dynamic that could change, and we don't know exactly how it will change. I think I think Kagan will be a little bit more assertive than Sotomayor, but I'm not, I can't say that for sure. Uh, she's definitely had these very important and 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 public administrative positions uh, to, to keep her on the Harvard Law faculty is no easy task. Uh, and I think she's not going to be pushed around. Well, I know that uh, Jeffrey uh, uh, Tubin uh, described uh, Elena Kagan as having what he called a formidable mind. Uh, how is that likely to uh, come into play on a on a on a court full of formidable minds, uh, uh, with her being the the newest justice on the court, uh, is she likely to be able to uh, wield some influence beyond her own perspective on issues? Well, you know, influence develops uh, over time. It doesn't necessarily assert itself immediately. Um, it's 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 hard to predict, and of course, there'll be other changes on the court while she's on it that will you know have some effect. Uh, on her, I don't think she can immediately step into Stevens' leadership role. Uh, Stevens was clearly the the leader of the liberal faction of the court, uh, and was very highly respected. And uh, that counts for a lot. He was also, of course, the senior associate justice, which meant he assigned a fair number of opinions, many to himself. Uh, she doesn't. She she won't have that authority. Uh, so. Uh, um, it's hard to it's hard to say. I think that in terms of voting, I think as, as was said a few minutes ago, I, I don't think she'll be very different from Stevens. And by the way, despite what Stevens said uh, uh, about himself, uh, I, I don't think that's entirely accurate. Uh, he was a much more conservative justice, voted against affirmative action in his early years, uh, and. While it's true that the court moved to the right, it's also true that he moved to the left, as we define those terms. Uh, so who knows where she will move, in which direction? I think, uh, uh, just to add, I would say uh, there's some expectation or hope, I think, among liberals that Kagan will sort of be the intellectual uh, counterweight to Scalia. Scalia is so, such an aggressive, abrasive but brilliant uh, advocate and uh, writer, and and I think Justices Breyer and Ginsburg haven't really stepped up to the plate in terms of uh, uh, 
meeting Scalia's attacks head on, uh, maybe there's some hope that uh, Kagan will do that, and that uh, uh, especially with her experience with the Harvard faculty, that she'll uh, she'll know how to parry and uh, you know Scalia's positions uh, in a in an effective way. Well, I think I think that's that's a possibility. She's probably going to develop into the most assertive of the four liberals on the court. And you know, as, as you said, Ginsburg can be very assertive in her opinions, but she's not otherwise assertive. Breyer is not particularly, and uh, too early to, to say about uh, Sotomayor. Uh, the Scalia thing, I know, for a lot of people say, and I've probably said it myself. You know that she would she would take him on in a way that Ginsburg doesn't want to do. Um, but you know, there's another side to that uh, question, which is that Scalia himself, if you look at the record, hasn't been all that influential. He's been loud uh, and and contentious uh, and divisive, but uh, he hasn't hasn't often carried the court. Uh, in the direction that he wants to go. And so it may be that as a matter of strategy, uh, uh, the liberals are best just kind of leaving him alone. Uh, just like they, they rarely respond to, to Clarence Thomas's off-the-wall dissent. Because we need to take a short break uh, right now. Uh, ask, uh, Please stay with us, and we will be right back after these words from our sponsors. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com slash legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're talking about the newest Supreme Court Justice, Elena Kagan, with our guest, Joel Grossman, uh, professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University and adjunct professor of law at the University of Maryland Law School. 
And Tony Morrow, Supreme Court correspondent for the National Law Journal and uh, for ALM Media. Uh, one thing we haven't really talked about yet in this program is uh, the uh, the uh, the gender balance, I guess, uh, of the court, if you will. Uh, Elena Kagan is only the fourth ever woman on the court, and this will be the first time uh, ever that the court has had three women uh, sitting justices. Um, let me ask uh, both of you whether you you think that will uh, you know what that might mean for the court going forward. Well, I, I'll just answer quickly. Sure. I think. You know, obviously, there's tremendous symbolism. You know, when the court convenes on October 4th, uh, you know, three of the nine, nine justices uh, approaching the bench from, uh, from behind the, high, the velvet curtains will be women, and that that that's uh, says quite a bit. Uh, there's also been some, you know, social science research that suggests that in groups where there are more women, uh, the group dynamic is different from uh, an all-male uh, court or, or institution. Uh, I don't know exactly how that plays out uh, uh, on the Supreme Court. Uh, the answer that Justice O'Connor and Justice Ginsburg have always given is that, uh, you know, a wise man and a wise woman reach this, the same conclusion. Uh, so it's, it's just hard to say beyond the symbolism exactly what, what what difference it will make. Uh, uh, Ginsburg addressed that question recently, and she's done it before, and she's argued that, that you know, there are subtle differences that 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 uh, the men men are not used to listening to women, and the, therefore the fact that there are more women uh, uh, will, will make the men on the court more likely to listen to them. And while that's a, you know, a general kind of thing, uh, I think it has some, some merit. Uh, also, she's always used as an example the case uh, last year, uh, the strip search case of the 13-year-old girl, uh, and she pointed out that when the case was discussed in conference, the, the, the male justices all said, well, it's nothing, you know, everybody strips in gym class, and and the, the, the women said, no, no, it's different for a 13-year-old girl. So there are certain kinds of cases where perhaps there's a difference. But I agree, in general, uh, that's not the most important thing when you're talking about the commerce clause or uh, uh, the new health care bill or something like that. Uh, I don't know that there's a feminine, feminist or feminine view. But I will say this, there's another diversity angle that I think is interesting. Uh, this is the first court in American history that has no Protestants. There are three Jews and six Catholics. Which, which is an absolutely incredible thing when you think about how the court has developed and who serves on it for the previous 180 years. Right. Uh, and on most issues, that probably doesn't make a difference. Uh, you have uh, liberal Catholics and conservative Catholics, uh, but uh, on certain key hot-button issues like abortion, it could, could make a difference. So I think that, that those are... Uh, you know, very important, and I think the next president is going to have to make another affirmative action decision of whether to put the first Asian on the court uh, um, and or to put another black member on the court. 
So I, I think those kinds of differences do make do make some difference. Right. And you say the next president. I mean, justices. Uh, I think by my count, the justices Scalia and Kennedy are are the two oldest justices at this point, and they're each about well, that, that's correct seventy four years old. I, I, I by my calculation, uh, and uh, overall, this is a fairly young court uh, right now by by Supreme Court standards. Oh yeah. Um, I, I, you know. Barring some unforeseen illness, it, it seems to be this is this is the bench we're likely to have for for some years to come. Right now, uh, that's right. And Justice Ginsburg has who who is actually is uh, seventy seven, I believe. She she has said she's not she uh, is really not going anywhere. She intends to stay on the court, and so so she can match Louis Brandeis's age at, at retirement, which I think was eighty. Three, so she's she's uh, at least forecasting that she'll be there for at least five more years. Uh, and uh, you're right. Apart from that, nobody else seems to be likely to go. Um, so we may have had all of the Obama appointees. We'll see, uh, unless he gets a second term. Yeah, well, I think that's right. I mean, you know, barring uh, some unforeseen medical. Uh, event on the uh, 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 on on the court. Um, remember that when Clarence Thomas was uh, appointed in 1990, that was now you know 1991. That was 19 years ago. Uh, and when he was confirmed, uh, he said uh, uh, partly uh, uh, in in anger after how he was treated. He said, "I intend to stay on the court uh, 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 until the end." Uh, and he was then only 43. <laughs> so right. he, he could easily break, uh, assuming continued good health, he could easily break the the all-time record of service on the court, which is held by Justice Douglas, 36 years and some seven-some-odd months. Um, we thought Stevens was heading for that, but he obviously pulled back and decided it wasn't worth it. He would have had to put two more years on the court. <laughs> Uh, as for right. age, uh, Holmes was the oldest. Uh, at, he retired uh, in his 92nd year. Uh, and Stevens uh, didn't break that, but he came close. Uh, and then there have been a lot of justices who have stayed on the court into their 80s. So you're right. This is a relatively young court. Uh, and and uh, uh even though by other standards it's a, they're a group of older people, but it's a relatively young court. So who knows? Maybe no changes for a while. Well, our time is just about up for this program. And before we conclude, I want to give each of you an opportunity to have give us your final thoughts on uh, on the uh, the swearing in of Elena Kagan uh, to the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, also, if you'd like to tell our listeners how they can follow up with you, uh, you're welcome to do that as well. So, Professor Joel Grossman, let me start with you. Um, well, it's hard to sum up all of this in 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 a in a in a in a minute, but I think what we have seen is, of course, that as the as people recognize and that the Supreme Court makes decisions that are very important in our society, as the stakes are higher. Uh, the states of appointment are higher. Uh, you can't afford to make a mistake. You can't be casual the, the way Eisenhower was in appointing Warren and Brennan, uh, whom he later characterized as the biggest damn fool mistakes he ever made. 
because he didn't check them out very well. Uh, and and I don't think any president today would would be in that uh, would allow that uh, to happen. So uh, I think that uh, whenever we do have vacancies uh, in the future, they unless they are extraordinarily uh, mainstream kind of candidates, uh, we are likely to have this kind of partisan divide. And it won't make any difference which party is up and which party is is down. They both play the same game. Uh, and and that has made the, the confirmation process and the appointment process, the confirmation process interesting, but also uh, um, very hard to to explain and to rationalize. Very good. Do you want to uh, let our listeners know how best to follow up with you? I know you're uh, listed on the University of Maryland School of Law website. Um, they're, they're, the best way to get me is by email. Uh, my email is jbgrossm at jhu.edu. Very good. And Tony Morrow, your final thoughts today? Well, just to, that, that it's going to be uh, an interesting first uh, term or two for, for Kagan. Uh, she won't have much time to to practice. <laughs> She'll have to jump right in. There are cases on their way involving uh, immigration law, the health court care reform legislation, and then the big one, uh, which may take more than one term to get there, but the uh, same-sex marriage issue from California and, uh, you know, possibly the one from Massachusetts as well. Uh, so it's going to be, uh, uh, you know, as always, the, the Supreme Court is where the major issues of the day eventually end up in one form or other. So uh, stay tuned. And uh, my email address is tmorrow, that's T-M-A-U-R-O, at A-L-M dot com. That stands for American Lawyer Media. Well, thank you very much uh, to both of you for taking the time to be with us today and share your insights on Elena Kagan. i uh, like to remind our listeners that... Uh, they can keep up to date with all of the Lawyer to Lawyer episodes by subscribing in the uh, iTunes podcast library or by subscribing to our RSS feed on uh, LegalTalkNetwork.com. And you can get CLE credit for listening to our program by going to the LegalTalkNetwork.com and clicking on the West Legal Ed Center icon there. Uh, thanks again to our guests. We will be back next week with another installment of Lawyer to Lawyer. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. 
Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.